day or a warm day or a Sunday. If Monday is always bad, you will waste 10 to 15 years of your precious time and your precious life. And so do we hear possibilities or do we hear problems in the command to rejoice in the Lord always? And do we understand? Have we learned? Do we appreciate that joy has more to do with what's going on inside of you than what's going on around you? God used a man in prison to teach us about joy. It's a picture of Paul's alleged prison cell in Rome. We took a picture of this when we were in Rome a few years ago. And you think about the genesis of the church at Philippi itself, and it also related to one of Paul's imprisonments. Paul, Silas, the Philippian jailer, Acts 16 and 17, imprisoned, praying, singing, rejoicing. And so we've mentioned that when you read the book of Philippians, you would think that Paul was writing from Hawaii instead of these circumstances. That instead of sounding like Eeyore, as we often do, that Christianity hurts us, he sounds more like Tigger. And that's because you can be imprisoned physically, circumstantially, but somewhere entirely different, a million miles away emotionally and spiritually. And so as we pick up in Philippians 4 verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you are also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of one. That's not where verse 10 is coming from. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. My happiness is not essentially dependent on my circumstances, whether I'm hungry or full. That's not the foundation of my joy in Jesus. The ESV translates verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned the secret. And so what secrets have I learned that would allow me to have this type of contentment in peace in any and every circumstance in my life? Well, as we look at the immediate context of the things that we have learned previously throughout the book of Philippians, Chapter 1, God turns loss into gain. Jesus saves. Suffering can be a gift from God with blessings and purposes for the cause of Christ. The lowest service is rewarded with the highest exaltation. Chapter 2, the ultimate example of Jesus. God is at work in us. Not grumbling and complaining is evidence that you are a child of God. I can rejoice in life. And in death, because to be with Christ is gain. It's far better. Chapter 3, God has, and Christ has made me His own and redeemed and taken care of my past, my present, my future. Belly gods rob and destroy my joy. My citizenship is in heaven. Christ will transform my lowly body to be like His glorious body. Chapter 4, joy is in the Lord, not stuff. Last time we talked about prayer plus gratitude equals the peace of God. And this morning, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the immediate context, the secret 
of contentment. Now as we zoom out to the remote context in the Bible at large, what the Bible teaches on the subject of contentment, I want to go to a couple passages, just a couple of many that we could go to, one in the Old Testament, one again in the New Testament. We want to go to the book of Ecclesiastes, the philosophy and purpose and meaning of life. We could also look at many Proverbs. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're given somewhat of an outline on the secrets of discontentment. The desire for more, the covetous desire for more, leads to more dissatisfaction. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The wisest, wealthiest man in the world wrote that. And so the myth is that having more will make me feel more loved, more secure, more happy. The new car smell wears off. If you have kids, it wears off even faster. We ask the question all the time, how much would it take for me to be happy? How much would it take? And almost the most common response, you can ask billionaires this, just a little more. We are addicted to upgrades. Sin entered the world because they had every fruit but one. The desire for more will lead to more dissatisfaction. He continues in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? It costs more to have more. The desire for more will lead to more expenses and you'll have more people coming into your life to help you spend it. People who win the lottery and celebrities and athletes Learn that. Leeches that drain them. It costs more to have more. As you admire the greener grass on the other side, just know it costs more to have green grass. The water bill's higher too. It costs more to have more. And if the grass is always greener on the other side, get busy in your garden. Verse 12, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And research shows the more you have, often the worse your sleep is. The desire for more often leads to more anxiety and fatigue. You have more to worry about. I never worry about my yacht. You got the joke. Everybody knows I would not be able to afford a yacht. I don't know where I'd put a yacht out here, to be honest. But I don't have to worry about the taxes, the insurance, the storage cost, because I don't have a yacht. And the irony is we give up health in the first half of our life for money, and then we spend the second half of our life giving up all our money to have our health back. And so we shouldn't be surprised the inevitable result of the mores, more dissatisfied, more expenses, more anxious, more tired, more cranky, more conflict in marriage, in the home, in relationships. What's the number one cause of divorce? We have all these mores, and what's the result? There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. And so if you want to be free of these mores, you have to learn not only the secret of discontentment, you've got to learn the secret of contentment. And I want to go to another passage. Paul writing to Timothy on the subject of contentment in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And it begs the question, is godliness without contentment even possible? And notice he doesn't say don't pursue gain, but pursue greater gain. 
talked about the C.S. Lewis quote that's so profound. It's not that our desires are too strong. It's that our desires are too weak. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And that's why you won't see a U-Haul chasing a hearse on the way to the cemetery unless you find some cute meme. Remember the story of a businessman who had passed away, and two other businessmen are looking at him in his casket, and one of them says, how much did he leave behind? The other one quickly responded, everything. The only thing you take with you is what you gave away in service to God, in service to other people. The only thing you'll have for eternity, the only thing that's going to be left is your contentment in Jesus Christ. That's what you keep. However much you found contentment and joy and peace is what you'll have forever. And having food and clothing, let us therewith be content. Notice Paul, just like Jesus in Matthew 6, defines necessities, our needs, as food and clothing. Daily. Not necessarily a pantry. Not necessarily a closet full of clothes. If you can feed and cover your body today, be content. Jesus didn't have a house. Jesus didn't have a horse. And has our attitude towards money been shaped by American consumerism or by the Bible? Poor, according to the Bible, poverty, according to the Bible, is inadequate food and clothing today. And if you want to see what that looks like, it's hard to see that really in America. Look at a third world country, Africa. We see it in India, in the slums. Inadequate food and clothing. And I would argue that those defined as below the poverty level and impoverished, and I'm not saying we aren't concerned and don't try to get them the excess, and the, I'm not saying we shouldn't help people in America that are poor by American standards. What I'm saying is what we have defined as poor today would be rich in quality of life compared to the richest people in human history. You think about kings and rulers who maybe were worth billions in today's money, didn't have indoor plumbing didn't have heating and air, didn't have access to the medicine and the types of clothing and technology that all Americans essentially have some access to. You look at people defined as poor in the United States in very high percentage have housing and shelter, have transportation, have indoor plumbing, have heating and air, have a TV, have a phone, have a PlayStation, and so who would you trade places with? Somebody defined as poor in the United States today or a king living in the dark ages? And the truth is, after our basic needs are met, buying stuff, amenities, appliances, etc., really don't significantly contribute to your joy. What money can't buy is what determines your joy. And that's why the saying goes, contentment makes poor men rich, Discontentment makes rich men poor. Verse 9, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. This covetous desire to be rich will make you more easily a victim to get rich schemes. Lottery doesn't appeal to me. We've been warned that these things, there's a trick and it's a trap. And it won't just mess up your marriage, your children, your business, your bank account but it'll mess up your soul. What you do with your money can make or break your joy forever. And the concept here is like taking a knife and mutilating yourself. 
Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is a verse I can vividly remember, one of many, one of the first I can remember misapplying and misquoting for a long time, thought love, or the, money is the root of all evil. And that's not what it says. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, and you can have that problem be flat broke. But one of the things I've wondered about, why is the love of money the root of all evil? Why is it that big of a deal? How is the love of money the root of all evil? All evils come from a certain type of heart and mind, the type of heart and mind and attitude that loves and trusts money. And if you love and put your trust in money, Jesus says in Matthew 6, you won't serve God. And if you are loving, if you aren't loving and trusting and serving God, everything you do is evil. Love of money is a desire that's the root of all types of desires. Desires money can't buy, money can buy minus God. And the root of all evil is desire minus God. It's not that our desires are too strong, it's that our desires are too weak. And so Paul says, this is a fight of faith, just like all sin. Covetousness, like virtually all battles of sin, is a battle of faith and belief and trust and conviction. Why am I seeking contentment and peace and a return on investment outside of Jesus Christ? Because I have an established trust. Covetousness destroys by destroying and undermining our faith. Because faith says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Faith says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. That everything, all the abundance is dung by comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you've got to focus on the true riches, which is Jesus Christ, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. We have something and someone greater to live for than the rubbish. Don't be rich with nothing. We talk a lot about people who have so much to live on, do they have anything to live for? And so when I learn these secrets, what's my response? Well, my response should be to stop coveting. <laughs> Covetousness is essentially seeking and desiring something so much that you lose contentment and satisfaction in God and you seek it outside of God. That's why it's called idolatry in places like Colossians chapter 3. The, the Ten Commandments are bookended. No other gods thou shalt not covet. Stop coveting, stop comparing, which is why you're coveting. It's the result of, of, and cause of insecurity and inferiority complexes. What do we do when we see something we like that's not ours? <laughs> nice house, nice car, nice hair, nice clothes. That's why you're frustrated. Discontentment is a multi-billion dollar industry. If you haven't learned this secret, the goal of advertising is to get you to be discontent. You will cool unless you drive this minivan. You will, your house is in, inhabitable unless you clean it with this product. No one's going to like you if you're the stinky kid in class. Therefore, clean yourself up with our product. And the key is we've got to learn to be content with what we have. We're not talking about being lazy and content with who we are and our growth. Paul said, I press on, Philippians chapter 3. But content with what you have in Jesus and be happy for other people. 
That's the key. When I see, and this is kind of how I'm wired as a saver, when I see an expensive car or something really nice, you know what I think? I'm glad I didn't pay for that. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have that payment. I'm happy for you. We went to Wolfland to look at Christmas lights a couple months ago, and this was the first year that we had put up Christmas lights, and we thought they looked pretty good until we went to Wolfland. And I remember driving around, you know, that's, so that's how they live over here, you know. And I remember telling Kelsey, we need to come back when it's daylight so I can admire the houses. I don't know that that's a good idea, except for the fact that I, again, am able. We saw the trees wrapped, and we saw the fancy houses and the fancy lot. I'm glad I didn't pay for that. I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. I can admire things without the need to acquire them. Happiness is not, Shakespeare said, happiness is not having what you want, but it's really wanting what you have. So stop complaining. Been to third world slums, and you come back with some perspective, and you do really good about not complaining until you become an American a few months later again. <laughs> And you revert back to it. But, you know, some of the things I appreciate having gone to India, it's like when you have a disability or you tear your Achilles or, and you can't walk and you, you take stuff for granted that you've been able to do. Your, now you appreciate being able to do them. Some of the things I appreciate having gone to India, indoor plumbing, hot water, good air conditioning, nice smells. We're the first trip to India. We were about to land and we were flying over slums and I was... You know, what is that? And it was India. Regulations, to a certain extent. When you drive on the most dangerous roads in the world and you see evidence of that all around you, when you see electrical wires at ground level that have maimed or killed many children and adults, I'm thankful for a certain level of regulation, to be honest. Global median salary is $1,200. 50% of the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. So if your household income is $26,000 a year, you're the top 10% richest people in the world. If your in household income is $52,000 a year, you're in the top 1% in the world. 22,000 children die per day due to poverty, real poverty. One billion children live in poverty. One billion people have inadequate access to good water. And so as the saying goes, I once complained that I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. We support orphanages and we go visit those orphanages when we're over there. And I recall an early trip going and several boys share one room and all the girls share another room. And they were so excited to show us their suitcase and their suitcase contained everything they owned, every book, every toy, every piece of clothing fit inside a single suitcase. And it's hard to complain when you're grateful. Paul said, thanks for the gifts. <laughs> I'm not bitter. You know, it's kind of interesting. Thank you note, you know, here, but it's because you lacked opportunity. You know, I'm not bitter. You would have sent it earlier if you could have. I'm grateful. But you know what? I really don't need it. Thank you, but I don't really need it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm God supplied. <laughs> but I think we know what he's saying. Don't misunderstand me. I'm grateful, but I'm God supplied. He refused to live in a prison of resentment. And that's the worst prison of all. So how do you interpret and choose 
to respond to your situation. Are you a victim? Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Can you see and appreciate the providence in your life? Can you recognize the Epaphroditus standing right in front of you? You can live in resentment, or you can choose to live in contentment. And so once I learned the secret of contentment, I now know how to hunger and how to suffer. I can do all things through Christ, includes not just the abounding things, but the abasing things. Not just the winning things, the losing things. I can lose through Christ who strengthens me. You won't see that many locker rooms. Paul said, I rejoice greatly that your care for me has flourished. It's blossomed. I've made it through winter into spring. I made it through the losing season. I made it through what we would call, you know, if you've ever been on a losing team or in a losing season, you know a nice way we frame that? (laughs) It's a rebuilding year. And that's a nice way of saying we stink, but we're doing something about it. Don't get stuck in winter. The nights are long. The days are short. Don't be defined and manipulated by winter. If you focus on the winter, if you focus on negative emptiness, negative 30-degree wind chills, you will be a negative, empty, cold person. And the one who wrote that suffered tremendously. You see places like 2 Corinthians 11, a catalog, a resume of his suffering. And in the very next chapter, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. And if you look at the context of 2 Corinthians, what he's being forced to do, awkwardly, uncomfortably, he's having to defend his apostleship. How does he do it? How do you boast about your resume as a Christian? Brilliant. You know what he does? He boasts in his weakness. I'm going to defend my apostleship by telling you how weak I am. And the point was, look at all the things I've endured. 2 Corinthians 11. I've made it through it. I've made it to the other side. I've endured all this. And look at all the things I'm accomplishing in my ministry. God's accomplishing through my ministry. When you look at what I've endured and what I'm accomplishing in my ministry, and you consider my weakness, my thorn in the flesh, I'm the chief of sinners, you can't explain that by my power, but only by the power of God. He has entrusted to me as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So what's the thorn? What's the thorn? Well, if you look at verse 10, in a summary, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. I'll tell you what the thorn is not, in my opinion. It's not sin. It's not a self-inflicted thorn. He's not saying that Christ is perfected, the power of Christ is perfected in my bad choices. You look at what the thorn could be. Many have hypothesized different things. The context in 2 Corinthians, maybe it was the false apostles and false teachers that were opposing him, turning a church that he had established and had risked so much for against him. This was perhaps the lowest point in his ministry and the lowest point in his life. Maybe that was the thorn that was humbling him, that opposition. Maybe it was physical and emotional ailments that were the result of all the things that he was enduring. Maybe it was eye problems. He talks in various places like to the Galatians, indicating that he had some type of eye problem. But the truth is, we don't know. And I think that's a blessing because whatever your thorns are, whatever your weaknesses are, we can relate to Paul's thorn in the flesh. That's not the point. What the thorn is, is not the point. The point is, appreciate the blessings and purposes 
of thorns in your life. And so as he talks about the purpose of this thorn, verse seven, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he was receiving, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. What's the purpose of the thorn? The beginning and end of this verse, bookended by the same explanation, to keep me humble, to keep me from becoming conceited. And that's not the work of Satan. Satan works to keep you conceited. That's the work of God. And so we see here, not just the work of Satan to destroy, but we see here the work of God to deliver. And don't miss this. So amazing. God uses Satan against Satan. God can use the father of lies and pride to deliver us from the power of lies and pride. Satan wanted to use this thorn to turn Paul away from his faith and away from his mission, and God used it to turn him back closer, away from self-exaltation and back to his ministry. And evidently, God thinks our humility is more important than our comfort and then our freedom from pain. Thorns are a blessing that protect our joy, our faith, our hope, our love, from being destroyed by our pride. And so he says in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God uses thorns to bring us closer to him. Think about the profound impact suffering and being abased and being really brought low in your life in adversity can have on your faith. Now you can go one of two ways, but how it can affect your relationship. Think about the profound impact it has on your prayer. In those moments, in those crisis, your prayer is more fervent, it's more consistent, it's more clear, it's more simple and to the point. (laughs) And God can use these thorns to bring us closer to Him. But He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Notice that God responded not by decreasing the pain or the circumstances, but by increasing the grace. To increase the trust and the assurance gave relief without removing the problem. Doesn't promise trouble-free life and trouble-free Christianity. In fact, we're promised the opposite as Christians. But what he does promise is sufficient grace, not always in the form that you ask for it. And without these thorns, could we really know and appreciate and experience that God's grace is sufficient for me in my life? That His power is perfected in my weakness when I have nothing left Because when it's about my power and my ability, I get the glory. And so God uses us not in spite of our weakness, often because of our weakness. (laughs) That's a theme in the Bible, the heroes of faith, to show his power and his glory for the sake of Christ. That's the reason. That's the ultimate purpose of everything. We talked in Philippians 1 that, the, that suffering can give the gospel an audience it might not have had otherwise. That's what Paul said. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That The whole imperial guard knows that my imprisonment is for Christ. And not only that, brethren are emboldened to speak the word without fear so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for when I am weak, then I am strong. He is weakening you emptying you so you can be as strong 
and full of the power of His grace as possible. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And Paul said also, what kills me makes me far better. (laughs) Temporary pain can protect us from permanent pain. And we know that medically. We know that so many examples. The ultimate example to defeat evil pain and suffering forever, Christ endured the greatest evil pain and suffering of all time. Temporary pain to protect us from permanent pain. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He wore a crown of thorns to remove our evil pain and suffering. That's the power of thorn. Now I'm not trusting my own money, my own ingenuity, my own plans. And it's then that I began to see and appreciate God's power released in my weakness. In the midst of suffering, I find and discover my true power source. And here's the secret I've learned. The more aware you are of God's grace, the more humble, prayerful, grateful, joyful you'll be. And notice his response. Absolutely unbelievable. Therefore, as a result of what my thorns are accomplishing, I will boast the more gladly in my weaknesses. I will rejoice and I am content. Sufficient in this passage is the same word translated content that we read in 1 Timothy 6. The same word God used at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It doesn't get any more content, satisfied, well pleased than that. And so what Paul is saying here, if I can have these revelations and have this ministry and be humbled and protected against pride through this thorn, which also exposes and defeats Satan and his lies and magnifies Christ and his glory for Christ's sake, I will rejoice. I am well pleased. I am content. I am satisfied. I am at peace. Magnifying Christ was what his life was all about. We talked about that previously. That's what he lived for. That determined every response, every interpretation to a situation. I will magnify Christ in my life or in my death, in my thorn, in my handicap. And we see him go from sorrow to joy because I've learned the secret. I understand. I get it. I embrace it. I want to tell you, one of the biggest questions in your life that will determine the tone and tenor of your life, the eternal destiny of your life, the legacy you leave behind, when God gives you thorns to accomplish these things, how are you going to respond? That's the question of your life. How will you respond? Like the world? Murmuring, complaining, accusing? Or like that? I've learned how to suffer and how to hunger. And he said, I've learned how to abound because our contentment's not just threatened by hard times. Our contentment is threatened by good times. Not only have we not learned how to suffer because we don't maybe do it as much as maybe the rest of the world in a lot of ways. I think one of the biggest indictments on us as Christians living in America is in a lot of ways, we have not learned how to abound. What are the secrets to abounding in the immediate context? In Philippians, what have we learned? Admit you aren't deserving and appreciate grace. Give thanks. We've talked so much about gratitude. Remember that the abundance 
The excess can become lost at any moment. Remember the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and all the abundance by comparison to His worth is rubbish, is dung. And if all that abundance was taken away, joy and contentment and peace in Jesus Christ would remain. And as we zoom back out to the remote context, going back to 1 Timothy 6, charge them that are rich in this world, that's us. Look at the statistics earlier. If you didn't know the secret, that's us. We might be the only civilization in the history of the world whose poor people are obese. We don't know what poverty is. So to the rich, he says, charge them that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Don't flaunt it. Don't show it off. Don't think you're better. There's a temptation to think that I am more because I have more. Don't do that. And notice he says, God wants us not just to endure, He wants us to enjoy in a certain sense. God created us with taste buds and gave us Brahms. Created us with ears and gave us music. Created us with eyes and vision and gave us color and beauty. We've talked about the aesthetic argument for God's existence. You can't account for beauty, the ability to recognize beauty, to appreciate beauty by natural selection. The way we can account for it serves no purpose other than we have a beautiful God who creates beautiful things for us and in us. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Giving is the antidote to material. If you're holding on too tight, you got to start letting go a little bit. (laughs) Maybe a lot. And the solution is don't be proud. Don't be selfish. The poor need you to give. The church needs you to give. You need you to give. And we need to learn to be content with little so we can invest the excess (laughs) in what really matters and makes a difference. And the result laying up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. We've talked about the Beatitudes and how Jesus said here are the keys to blessedness, to happiness. And they're all paradoxes. The exact opposite place you would think to look is where you'll find happiness, where you'll find joy. And the one that relates the most to our subject this morning, Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil. Why? Why should I rejoice in that? Why should I rejoice in persecution? Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Reminded when the disciples came to Jesus and said, you know, look at what we're accomplishing in our ministry. Look at all the successes we're having. And what did he say? Don't rejoice that they're subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Neither suffering nor success should destroy our joy because Jesus has anchored both in the reward of heaven. Philippians 4, 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God's ability to supply is in accordance with his riches. It accords with his riches. That's great news. That's the quantity. In glory is the quality, not earthly. By Christ Jesus is the source, is the guarantee. And seeking this contentment in Christ is not only for our good and for our benefit, but ultimately it's for God's glory. We proclaim to a discontent, suffering, starving, miserable, unhappy world that only Christ can satisfy. 
That no circumstance can extinguish joy in Jesus. That joy doesn't just come when the rain stops, when the clouds part, the storm passes, the cold front moves on. If you rejoice in the Lord, you never have to be without real joy again. That's the truth that we proclaim. Never settle for a God, for a worldview, for a religion that can't offer you joy in these circumstances, that can't offer you joy in prison. And as we prepare to offer an invitation, if you're here and you're seeking joy in any and every circumstance, it's found in Christ alone. How do I get into Christ? Believe, repent, be baptized. And you can go on your way rejoicing forevermore, rejoicing in Jesus. Maybe you're here and as a Christian, you need to draw closer to God. Maybe you need to appreciate and be grateful for the thorns in your life and learn the secrets of discontentment, learn the secrets and apply the secrets of contentment in your life. If we can pray for you in your time of need, you're humbling that God may exalt you one day. If we can pray for you and encourage you in some way, we're ready to do that. As we close, I want to close our series the way Paul closed this letter in Philippians 4, verses 20 through 23. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you. Chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. If you have a spiritual need, we invite you to come and have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.